Well, hey, we're here to uh, celebrate Palm Sunday this morning. Thanks for showing up this morning. As you'll notice, both Ryan and I are up here. That's because we're going to team teach, which will be pretty fun. This is not meant to be gimmicky by any means. It's really just a way that uh, we can have a couple of different voices up here talking about this triumphal entry and what this really looked like, uh, what, Je- what it looked like for Jesus to come into Jerusalem, what this whole account in the, in the Gospels is about. So let me just say a quick word of prayer as we lead in, and then uh, we'll start. God, we ask that you are with us this morning. Lord, we ask that you help us to celebrate this morning. We ask you to help us better understand the triumphal entry, better understand what it looked like for you to walk into Jerusalem. So be with us, open our eyes to see you in new ways this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the triumphal entry. I wonder, actually, if the triumphal entry was all that triumphant. I'm not convinced it was, at least in the terms that we think of triumphal entries. See, when I think of a triumphant entry, I think of the Yankees after they win the World Series. Or the Saints. Somebody doesn't like the Yankees over there. I like that. I saw a head shaking. Um, Or the Saints after they won the Super Bowl, where they have these big floats. All the players get on these floats. There are people in the the high-rise buildings that are throwing out confetti. Thousands of people lining the streets. They're taking pictures. They're just trying to see these great sports heroes. And they triumphantly enter into the city that they're from to celebrate their winning of this game, the Super Bowl, the World Series, whatever. So maybe we think about it that way. Or maybe we think about it in a presidential inauguration where there's speeches and, again, thousands of people that are there to witness this event, motorcades and security people and uh, just this huge to-do about the president taking office, entering into his new office. I think about it in the way of the Tour de France. How many people watch cycling? Yeah, there's about six of them in the last service, and there's about seven of us this service, so that's awesome. It's actually a a really fun sport to watch, um, and I love it. I I really enjoy watching it. It happens every year towards the end of June. It's about a month long. There's 21 days of cycling where 180 cyclists come together in primarily France, but throughout a little bit of Europe, and they do this incredible race, the Tour de France. We've all heard about it. You guys know Lance Armstrong. You know the stories. But on the last day, they ride in to Paris. And in last service, I said they ride into the city of France. Now, France is not a city. That was just a mistake. Uh, Some of my friends let me know that. Uh, So they ride into the city of Paris. The winner at this point, 21 days in the race, is already decided. I mean, I don't think it's actually ever happened where the standings change on the last day. So it's more of kind of a, a processional. It's this triumphant entry coming in to Paris to celebrate the winning. This is where we see the cyclists drinking champagne, Lance Armstrong holding up five because he's won five. He actually won more than that. But it's that, that idea of triumphantly coming in. They actually ride eight times on something called, and Ryan will correct me after I say this, the Champs-Élysées. Champs-Élysées, something like that. <laughs> it's this main road in Paris. There's the Arc de Triomphe, probably say it a different way, but it's this, it's this incredible scene, thousands and thousands of people lining the streets to watch these cyclists come in. It's this triumphant entry into the city of Paris. I think that's how we view the triumphal entry. I think a lot of times we view Jesus coming into Jerusalem through that lens. But I'm not convinced it actually really looked like that at all. I think we picture Jesus coming into Jerusalem 
on a ticker tape parade. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to erase all of your images, images of parades that you have, your kind of Braveheart, Gladiator, medieval-type movie images of what this could have looked like. Erase the, the Yankees, erase the Saints, whatever it is, those images that we have, even your personal experiences of being down at the Lilac Parade, when you get your curbside seat and you have your towel and your cooler full of dinner and all that stuff, kind of get those out and let's paint a new picture, the picture of what this probably actually really looked like when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. So for that to happen, we're going to turn to the uh, book of Luke in your Bible if you want to follow along. We're going to look, look at Luke 19 primarily. There's also, this account is uh, talked about in John 12, Matthew 21, and Mark 11. But primarily, we'll look at Luke. So to give a little bit of context, in the very beginning of Luke 19, Jesus is in Jericho. And this is where we see Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. Do people know the Zacchaeus song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. We've all learned that at some level. Well, thank you for singing it. Um, so he has this, this really cool interaction with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a short man, climbs into the tree to get a better vantage point, a better view of Jesus. And Jesus comes, stops kind of below him and says, hey, Zach, come on down out of the tree. I'm having dinner at your house tonight. And in the course of that interaction with Zacchaeus, Jesus says, soteria, or salvation, has come to this house, this idea of deliverance, wholeness, fulfillment, because of Jesus, or because of Zacchaeus, repenting, turning around, wanting a new life. He says, salvation has come here. Jesus then talks about this, this parable of the ten minas. Right after that, he goes to Bethany, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. All in a day's work for Jesus. And so we come to verse 29 in Luke 19. It's the end of Jesus' ministry. He knows it's his time. He knows it's the end of his life on earth. He asks his disciples to go ahead of him to make arrangements for him to come into Jerusalem. So he sends two of them into a nearby city to get a colt. He said, there you'll find a colt that's never been ridden on. I want you to bring that colt to me. If somebody asks what you're doing, just say, hey, the Lord needs it. So sure enough, the disciples go in and they begin to untie this colt. And the owner says, well, what in the world are you doing? You're, you're taking my, my colt here. The disciples say, well, the Lord needs it. And so the blessing is given. They take this colt. We can stop here. A lot of times on Palm Sunday, we talk about the significance of the colt. The colt symbolizes humility. It symbolizes peace to ride a colt. If somebody were to want to establish a kingdom to, to uh, try to represent their kingdom or become king, they would often ride a horse. A horse is just a much more powerful animal. And so symbolically, it leads us to understand more power, kind of war. This person trying to establish a kingdom via those things. But Jesus says, no, it's, I'm about peace. I'm a humble king. And so I'll ride in on a colt. This all fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So let's put ourselves in this place. Imagine yourself on this dirty road, this dusty kind of mid-east road somewhere. They're in Bethany and Bethpage, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. The disciples bring this colt in. It's this kind of pathetic, small-looking little animal. 
They bring it up to Jesus. They kind of throw their coats on it just to make it at least somewhat respectable. So Jesus swings his leg on it. Maybe he sits side saddle. His feet are dangling in the dirt still because it's a small, tiny, little, pathetic thing. The whole multitude of the disciples are said to be there. We don't know what this number is. Maybe it's just the 12 disciples. Maybe it's some of the people that just witnessed what had happened with Lazarus. But I don't think it's millions of people. I don't think it's thousands of people. I'm not, frankly, even convinced it's hundreds of people. I think it's 25, 50, 7,500 people maybe. But it's really Jesus' closest followers. They're now surrounding Jesus on this colt. They're laying their coats down on the ground. They're waving palm branches, what we made this morning. They're waving them. They're placing them down as a sign of humility, a sign of reverence, a sign of honor to their king. And they're not lining the streets, but they're walking with this pathetic little animal, Jesus sitting on it, this beautiful sign of humility. They're walking towards Jerusalem. They're quoting Psalm 118 that said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting Hosanna, which in the Hebrew means, Save us, we pray. And it's dusty, and it's hot. It's not all that triumphant, frankly. It doesn't seem really triumphant. But it is beautiful. It's this beautiful scene of worship and honor of Jesus' most devout, his most faithful followers. And it's at this point that the Pharisees show up. The Pharisees kind of come into this scene and they say, Whoa, whoa, Jesus, you need to rebuke these people. What are you doing? You see, they're worried that this is going to cause a commotion. They're worried that people are going to begin to notice what's happening. That even this small little band of people, somebody's going to notice. And people are going to begin asking questions. And the Roman Empire is going to get what's going on here. Somebody's trying to establish themselves as king, and they're going to oppress that. The Pharisees said, well, rebuke these people. Stop this, because they were afraid. They didn't want to give up their standing. They were afraid that this would jeopardize the role that they had. It would jeopardize their power. And Jesus says in verse 40, I tell you, if these, referring to his disciples, I can imagine him sitting on the, on the colt, kind of pointing out as he's talking to the Pharisees, hey, if these right here become silent, the stones will cry out. I'd heard this referred to as our charge to be evangelistic often. Hey, if somebody doesn't talk about Jesus, I mean, this is it. The stones will cry out. You've got to go out and put that name out there. Talk about Jesus. I think there's some merit in that. A lot of times people, uh, are, um, uh, people would read this and they'd refer back to Habakkuk 2.11. And that reads that, that uh, these things, the stones would cry out by the things that were taken by oppressive nations. So oppressive nations would take things and the stones will cry out against that. But let me take some liberty this morning and question whether that's even the fulfillment of this. What if Jesus was talking about something even more than that? What if Jesus was saying, it's too late to squelch the praise of me? I am the king. I am the savior. And so rebuke my disciples, tell them to be quiet, tell them to shut up, do what you have to do, but I will be praised. The whole creation groans for me, for salvation, for redemption, and that's what I have come. So I think maybe Jesus was talking about the reality that, hey, you can do what you want to, Pharisees, to my disciples, but the rocks will cry out if you do, because I am the king, I am the savior, I am the Messiah, and I will be praised. So, yes, I think this is a triumphant entry. 
Maybe not in the ways that we view triumphant entries, but it is joyous, it's praiseworthy, it's beautiful. It's this wonderful occasion when Jesus is establishing himself as the king, as Messiah, as Savior. It's the culmination of all he taught, the culmination of all he did. It's a wonderful scene of a humble king beginning to institute his kingdom. Have you ever had one of those moments where the day is going great? You know, you've been at Silverwood, family's loving it, a little sunburned. Got the good milkshakes or ice cream there or something. It's just a great day. You're going back to the car with the family and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what a, this was, what a day. This one's going to go down in, the, in history. And then your daughter falls and scrapes her knee or something. Tears start flowing. Suddenly this kid's hungry. The, suddenly this great, fantastic day changes completely. And in this one moment of Oh, this is, this is now, I cannot wait to get home. This is one of the worst days of my life. Does anyone know this kind of thing? I mean, maybe it's out, you're with your friends, and you're just watching the game, it's fun, having a couple drinks, non-alcoholic, <laughs> hanging out, and had a great time of conversation, and you leave, and you kind of look over, and you're oh, laughing, and one of your friends kind of has that look. You know, it's just that look of, I didn't think that was the look we were having. And you start retracing. Oh my gosh, did somebody say something over dinner we shouldn't have said? Is she offended? Is he offended? And you kind of say, hey, are you all right? Did I say something? But it's kind of this thing where everything changes. The day was this, and now it's that. Can anyone relate to this? These experiences, right? Well, that is kind of the Palm Sunday experience, if you ask me. We've gotten into this celebratory humble but yet triumphant story, and suddenly it says Jesus is weeping. He's weeping. And the Greek word for this weeping is he's mourning, lamenting, wailing, as though someone has died. There's not many verses of Jesus weeping. We have the famous Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible we like to throw out. And he wept over Lazarus. And that Greek word actually is different, and, and he shed tears. This weeping is a deep mourning. So there's some chance even this is the first time the disciples have really seen Jesus with this kind of emotion. And so you have this, this sense of, man, celebration, triumphant, into Jesus sitting on this colt, looking over the city, mourning. And you can imagine the disciples whoa, what's going on here? I, I thought we were kind of going pretty well. I mean, this is the time we've been waiting for. We know the prophecies. We've been excited about this. Jesus is king. We've acknowledged him. Jesus, I mean, we're going into the city, and you're weeping and mourning now? What, what, did, did Matthew say something? Did, you know, what's going on here? Jesus, what's the problem? And in verse 42 of Luke, Jesus says this. If you had known in this day, even you, Jerusalem, as he kind of looks over the city, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And you want to talk about a kind of a Debbie Downer here. We've got parade, chanting, waving the palm branches. Suddenly Jesus is mourning. We've gone from talking about stones that will cry out, blessed is the king, to stones that will be torn apart one upon another, utter destruction. We're talking about a city that the enemies will barricade you within it. There will be death. It will level the city. I mean, this is, whoa, what happened here? Why did it change? And Jesus says why he's weeping for this destruction. He gives two reasons. First, he says, Jerusalem did not know what would bring peace. And this word for know, as it often is, is not just an intellectual understanding, but this intimate understanding of what would bring peace. They didn't get it. And he's weeping over this. And the Greek word for recognize is the same exact word, for they didn't know, they didn't understand the time of Jesus' visitation to them. I mean, they, they didn't get what was happening. And because of that, Jesus is mourning over them, weeping over the destruction that that is going to bring. We've gone from this kind of happier moment to mourning about destruction. And then what? Jesus goes into the city. And, you know, I kind of imagine this. They were a couple miles away. We don't know again exactly, but I'm picturing the rest of the trip being a little more subdued. Jesus is still kind of wiping away the dried tears, and the disciples are... And they get into the temple. And the famous story, Jesus goes in, starts overturning the tables, telling them, you've turned my house into a house of thieves, a house of robbers. And again, we've got this movement from celebration, praise to the king, to a weeping, mourning king over destruction, and then this kind of anger of what has happened here. And all of these are, in a sense, the Palm Sunday story. You know, I picture these disciples again in the temple going, what has happened? I mean, can we get back to the parade? Because that was cool. That's what we've been waiting for. How do we get back there, Jesus? This stuff, man, this is hard. And so we're on Palm Sunday, and I would say, as Christians, we generally do the same thing, right? We focus on the palm fronds, and we spend 20 minutes making little crosses. You know, we don't have Jay come up here and set up some tables, and we all throw over tables. You know, we, we like the happy, the celebration part. That's the part we want to remember on Palm Sunday. And yet there's this other part to the story. And so maybe the question becomes, what part of the story, what part of Palm Sunday are we celebrating today? There's these four groups of people in the story. And three of the groups are kind of over here on this side of the story. And one of the groups is over here. So if the odds, playing the odds, chances are we're over here. But we don't want to be, right? We want, to, we want to be like the disciples, celebrating this moment, getting it, in a sense. And so what we wanted to do is just kind of look quickly at these four groups of people. And since I'm kind of a dark guy, you know, I like Depeche Mode. They're my favorite band. A little dark, mellow. If we had thought of it, we would have Depeche Mode play as I talk. 
And then when Kevin, being the happier personality, maybe Lady Gaga or something would play. That would be good. When he begins to speak. Huge Gaga. You know, poke your so. face. You could have danced and stuff. Uh, so I'm going to kind of look at the, the dark side, if you will. Those three groups that were kind of on the weeping and the mourning and the angry side. And Kevin is going to look at the one group from three different angles on kind of the happier side. So this first group of people is the people in Jerusalem. I think it's easy. Again, I kind of do this just by default sometimes. I've heard so many of the stories. I tend to think there were two kinds of people in Jerusalem. The sinners and the Pharisees. And the sinners were usually really dramatic sinners who Jesus came and had a great story with. And the Pharisees were the really dramatic Pharisees who Jesus came and had really harsh things to say to. And I kind of think you were either one or the other. But the, the, the reality is there were a lot of just kind of normal people in Jerusalem, right? I mean, just kind of your everyday citizen. And again, you kind of picture Jesus up here on this, looking over, and there's all these homes. There's probably just a lot of people who were in their homes, just hanging out, watching little, you know, Jewish soap opera or something. I don't know. Just chilling. Because things were good, Right? I mean, let's be honest, they maybe heard about Jesus, maybe they saw him with the crowd one time, but their honest answer was, I'm pretty comfortable. Pretty happy with the way things are, you know. I like our little system we've got, I go to the temple, I give my sacrifice, and, you know, I know when I'm in, when I'm out, yeah, there's some bad things, but I'm okay, I'm happy, I'm comfortable. I I don't really need this thing. And in a sense, these people are kind of just doing nothing. You know? I mean, again, you see this picture, Jesus up here looking over this village, this city, and there's a lot of people in their homes doing nothing. Because they just don't really care that much. And they have no idea that Jesus is up on this hill weeping over them, mourning over them, that they just don't understand what's happening. And so maybe the first thing we can kind of learn from this part of it is to get from this side to that side is let's start with doing something and not just sitting here doing nothing. So arguably, the disciples don't really know what's going on. They don't understand the full gravity of this triumphal entry. I mean, you think about throughout the Gospels, how many times the disciples just not get it? They miss the meaning of a parable. They have to ask Jesus kind of afterwards once the crowds are dispersed, hey, Jesus, what actually did that mean? Because I have no idea what you were just saying. They question Jesus in his ways often, not quite sure he's got it together or that the thing that he's doing is the right thing. They even argue amongst themselves who's going to sit at the right hand of God. And so it's this crazy group of guys that don't always get it. They don't always have it together. Even in this account, John, in John 12, 16, says this, regarding or referring to the triumphal entry. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. You see, in this moment, they're probably celebrating a political king. I think in this time, they thought Jesus was this political king, a political messiah, somebody that was going to come and wipe out the Roman Empire for them, was going to release the Jewish people from their oppressive this oppressive empire, Rome. So they were praising Jesus, saying, oh my gosh, deliverance has come. 
We're going to get out of this, this oppression that we've been in. They maybe thought it was a revengeful Messiah who would wipe out Rome. They didn't realize, again, they didn't fully understand what was going on, the full gravity of Jesus riding in to Jerusalem at this point. And so, although they're excited for the wrong reasons, even though they don't fully understand, they weren't simply at home doing nothing. So we know, we hear that, and we say, okay, do something, right? But we also know there was a group over on this side who was doing something. We've got these Pharisees in the temple, right? I mean, they're definitely doing something. And I often wonder how they reacted when Jesus came in and started overthrowing tables and saying, guys, what are you doing? I mean, it's easy to kind of get this picture again that, oh, well, they're the bad guys. And Jesus was the good guy. And so when Jesus came in, it was like, oh, here he comes. He's going to overturn the tables. But, you know, I wonder if there were some of them going, Jesus, what are you doing here? I mean, we're doing stuff. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. This is, don't you see it? Look at, look at what we've got set up here. We've got a great system. I mean, we're doing something, Jesus. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're doing something. You're doing the completely wrong thing. And I, I think about these Pharisees a lot. I've, I've been reading the Gospels for Lent again. And this one thing, just, it keeps popping up at me over and over and over again. And it's this, this contrast. Jesus will go in and do this amazing, wondrous miracle. And every time, it's the Pharisees who, in the face of this amazing, dramatic miracle, become angry. And, and you kind of start to read them over and over again. You go... You know, what's going on here? I mean, you've got Matthew 9. You have a, a man who's demon-possessed. and the star, I mean, this guy's he's, he's crazy. A demon-possessed man living in this village. You imagine the stories they've heard about him. Jesus goes in. The demon is cast out. This man completely changes 180 degrees. Life change. This is, I, I imagine being there and weeping. I mean, this is incredible. And the Pharisees are angry. They're completely missing it got this story of a hand, a withered hand being healed. Again, dramatic. This hand right in front of you just, whoosh, I don't know what it did. You know, some kind of, made a sound probably like that. Whoosh. And the Pharisees. Well, is it, you know, is this the Sabbath? Is this, is this, is this? Is it? I mean, guys, do you, do you see what just happened here? I mean, this guy's hand, look at it. Uh, missed it. Missed it completely. You've got the story of Jesus healing a man. And what do the Pharisees want to do? They want to destroy him. And in this temple scene, there's another classic example. Jesus comes down to the temple. He's throwing over tables. And it says children are singing. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, a little tug at your heart moment in a movie. You know, he set out the little kids. Get the children. They're singing in their little, cute, innocent voices. Singing to Jesus. Recognizing him as king. And it says, <clears throat> The chief priests and the scribes, seeing the wonderful things he had done. Again, children singing. They're seeing wonderful things he had done. And what does it say? They became indignant. And you just go, what is... Guys, what, what's, I don't get it. Children singing, 
seeing wonderful things he'd done, and you're angry again. I came across this verse in John 11, 48, right after Lazarus is raised from the dead. Again, pretty dramatic story. A guy who was dead, buried, now alive. Like, you know, again, I'm there, picturing myself there, I'm probably weeping. I mean, it's like, this, wow. Pharisees, angry again. Like, okay, guys, what's the deal? And it says this, the Pharisees were worried about losing their place and their nation. Man, so worried about losing their place, their nation, their little spot in the system that's comfortable because they're kind of in power. They miss out on miracle after miracle, drama after drama, wonder after wonder, because they are doing something, but everything they are doing is about protecting them and their place and their nation and their little system. So they're working hard. They're doing a lot. And it's all about, yeah, how can this a lot benefit and protect me? And in the process, missing out on everything going on around them. So this idea of doing something can also be doing the wrong things. And sometimes we're just protecting ourselves and missing out on so much. So you have these people in the temple doing something, but they're nowhere near Jesus. And that's the difference with the disciples, is they're actually out on the road. They're near Jesus. They're with Jesus. In Mark 3, as Jesus is appointing the 12, the guys that he's going to live his life with, he calls these men to him, these 12 guys, and the first thing that he asks of them, the first thing that he wants them to do is to be with him. That's a powerful statement, to be with me. I have a good friend who talks about withness as our greatest call. As Christians, that being with Jesus is the one and only thing we should be about. We need to stop being about religion. We need to stop being about institution, about buildings, about systems, about our place. We need to be about being with Jesus. I think we've mastered, as a culture, we've mastered the idea of looking like we're with Jesus. We're, we're good at it. We listen to the right music. We say the right things. We go to the right churches. We show up at the right times. We wear the right clothes. Even Ryan and I, we're wearing corresponding shoes today, if you haven't already noticed that. But we're great at looking like we're with Jesus. But I really wonder, are we truly with Jesus? It's not about saying the right things. It's not about doing the right things. It's not even about just doing this dance. It's about being with. It's about refocusing our life on being with Jesus, refocusing our life on following Jesus. And that's what the disciples did. So there's even this aspect of that, though, right? With Jesus. We've got the Pharisees. And they're often with Jesus. In fact, in a way, they're kind of following him. They definitely show up from time to time. And they're with him. 
there's something missing, right? It's, it's what, what is that thing missing? Maybe the first thing is, is that they do just kind of show up. We'll show up from time to time. It's cool. Sunday mornings are a great spot to show up. We get in a couple other little morning times during the week to show up. Maybe another one. Well, I'm doing good. I showed up a lot, Jesus. These Pharisees are always kind of showing up, and maybe that's one part of it. It's not this following, but it's, it's just kind of showing up here and there. But there's this other thing, because even when they show up, you just read the stories and you feel like it's, something's missing here. It's just not authentic. I mean, what, what is the deal with you guys? And maybe because it's, it seems like they always show up with an agenda. They're always with Jesus, but when they're with Jesus, they're with him on their terms. When they're with Jesus, they're not with him to listen. They're with Jesus to talk and tell Jesus the way it is. When they're with Jesus, you don't get the feeling they're with Jesus to learn. You get the feeling they're with Jesus to teach Jesus a few things. And what happens when we start to be with Jesus in that way, we start to follow like that, when we come with our agenda, and Jesus says, uh, actually, that's not the agenda, what do we do? See ya. We'll, we'll go over here, and we'll come back later and show up with maybe a different agenda. It's almost this idea of, yeah, we'll follow you, Jesus. We'll hang out, but I don't want to get too dirty here. I'd like to keep you at a safe distance. Because, again, I've got a lot to protect. I've got a lot of places, nations, systems to protect. I'll follow you at a safe distance. And when I do show up and get close, I'll bring my agenda. I'll bring the words. I'll bring the teaching. And if I don't like it, I'll just jet again. So that's the difference. The disciples weren't afraid to get dirty when they followed Jesus. You see, the Pharisees practiced this different kind of witness, a different kind of following. It's the following of just showing up with their agenda. But the disciples followed closely, so much so that they wanted to embody the old rabbinic saying, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Isn't that a cool picture? To follow so closely, to be so intimately connected that you're actually covered by the dust of your rabbi, the guy who's going in front of you, that you would be that close. Disciples had left everything. They'd left their jobs, left their families, status, comfort, predictability, their agendas. They'd left it all. They'd sacrificed it all so that they could follow Jesus, so that they could leverage everything that they had for his kingdom. Now, that's not to say that they didn't struggle. We talked about it already. There were times that they struggled. They questioned Jesus, times that they were frustrated, times they wanted to leave, even times that they could have left, and some disciples did leave. So it's not all easy. But they were no longer asking the question, what can Jesus do for me? They were now asking, where else would we go? This is all that we know. This is all that we trust. This is all that we hope for. This is our life. So where else would we go? None of that stuff matters anymore. This is what life is about. 
following insinuates movement. You can't follow if you're standing still. We talked about this throughout the whole book of Philippians in our previous series. The whole book is about movement. That's what following is. It's being willing to move. Now, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there is weeping, and we need to weep with Jesus over Jerusalem. It's not always easy, but it is beautiful. It's incredible. It's wonderful. And Jesus invites us into that. He says, come and be with me. Follow me so closely that you get dirty. So it's pretty simple, really, right? I mean, we've talked about the two sides of of Palm Sunday. We've got Lady Gaga. We've got Depeche Mode. Okay, let's do that a different way. We've got the triumphal entry, the celebration. We've got disciples saying, Hosanna, you are king. And we've got this other side of the story, the side of weeping, the side of mourning, the side of getting angry. And the question is, I mean, we've got one week until Easter. You know, I want to be on this side today. I want Palm Sunday to be a celebratory day for me. I know not every day is, I get that, but I want today to be a celebration. The king came, and I acknowledged him. And I want Easter to be a celebration because he came and he died and he rose again to offer us new life. And so the question becomes, you know, pretty simply, are we over here? Are we doing anything? You know, sometimes I'll admit it, I'm, I'm doing nothing. Because it's easy to do nothing. It feels good to do nothing. It's fun to sit at home and be comfortable with the way everything is. Am I over here doing anything? Am I here doing nothing, maybe? Am I showing up? Is my following of Jesus just kind of showing up from time to time? Because there's things I want to protect. There's things I want my religion to do for me. So I'll show up here and there. And when I do, I'll bring my agenda with me. Am I following Jesus from a distance? Keep you arm's length. Let's not get too crazy here. Or am I over here with these disciples in this humble triumphant, celebratory day. Cohen, Jesus, you know, I I don't get it all the time. I am confused from time to time, and I do ask dumb questions. But man, in my heart, I want to make sure I'm doing something. And when I'm doing something, I want to make sure I'm doing it with you. I'm going to be here with you. Out on the road, wherever we go. I'll be here at this hill looking over Jerusalem, weeping. But I'm going to be with you. And being with you, I'm not just going to show up. I mean, I am ready to do this. I'm ready to get dirty. I'm ready to get dusty. I'm ready for whatever it is. Because, Jesus, where else am I going to go? I mean, really, when it gets down to it, what else is going to offer me this? Over here, I miss the this so often. I miss the miracles. I miss the wondrous deeds because I've got all this stuff. I want to live over here and see it. I want to see the miracles. I want to see the wondrous deeds and praise you as king. So as you have this week to prepare for Easter, it's a simple few questions. You know, where are we? 
use this week to maybe get over here and celebrate the risen king next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for Palm Sunday. We thank you that there is much to celebrate. It is the arrival of the Messiah. It's the arrival of the Christ, the Son of God, our King, our Lord. Lord, we want to celebrate that today. Lord, help us. Help us not to get caught in the easy trap of doing nothing. Lord, help us to do something. Forgive us for our silly questions. We know you do. Forgive us for when we don't get it. But let our hearts be, Lord, let's do something. And when we do it, let's do it with you. We just want to be with you, Jesus. We don't want to be caught up in the systems, in the temples, in the religious structure. We want to be with you, and we want to follow you, whatever it costs. We want to be willing to get dirty and dusty because you did and we're just following. Because you do and we're there right with you. Lord, let that be our heart. And thank you for the grace and mercy when it's not. And kind of pull us back there again. Lord, we thank you for this week, for what it means. It's an awesome week, Lord. May we not get kind of stuck in the rut of, yeah, I've been here before, I've talked about Palm Sunday, talked about Easter. Lord, may we celebrate what you have done for us. We celebrate this week that you are the risen King. Lord, may we just love you more. We thank you for all that you have done. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen.